0: Hello, once again, this is Mark Vines and welcome to The Mark Vines Show. And today I want to continue on in our series of interviews with all of the great candidates that we have getting ready to Uh, face this election that we have coming up here in November in Virginia. Just a reminder again that there's two states in the union that have elections coming up, and that is New Jersey and Virginia. And we are really excited. And you can tell I'm excited about the election in Virginia because I know we are going to be turning this ship around. Uh, We cannot take any more damage to the, the country. And I think that Virginia is going to be a bellwether state. I think that this is going to be a shot across the bow, so to speak, to the rest of the country for things to come. And we have just a really great lineup of candidates running on the Republican side of the House for the House of Delegates here in Virginia. And today, our guest, Jeffrey Burke, is one of those people, and he's going to be running for the District 77 seat for the House of Delegates in Virginia, which is uh, really encompasses the Chesapeake Uh, area of Virginia which is just outside of Norfolk Virginia Beach if you know that area Uh, a lot of military down there a lot of contractors a lot of government agencies and we're really excited about that so with that as you know this is your one-stop shop for everything liberty freedom the American way and just you know frankly the right way of doing business as it concerns your life but with that we do have Jeffrey Burke so welcome to the show
1: Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Uh, Yeah. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the district that you're running in.
1: All right. Let's start with the district. Um, Chesapeake has uh, parts of six different delegate districts here in Virginia. Um, The two dominant districts that are most of Chesapeake um, includes mine. Uh, Mine is all of Northeast Chesapeake. Uh, and for those who are familiar with the political geography down here, it's from basically Kempsville Road and Great Bridge Boulevard north, all the way up to the Norfolk line and bounded on the uh, east by uh, Virginia Beach and on the west by the southern branch of the Elizabeth River. Uh, it includes um, a portion of the Riverwalk area um, along the Elizabeth River uh, southern branch as well. The, Demo- the Democrats have uh, had a hold on this district for all well almost forever for all intents and purposes. In fact, there's never been a Republican candidate on the ballot at least back to 1997. So the fellow I'm running against, who's been up there for about five years now, has never had a Republican challenger, and no one has ever been able to hold him accountable for the abysmal voting record he's accumulated in the last five years. Um, The district was created uh, with minorities in mind. Uh, I am not a minority candidate. He is a minority incumbent. Um, but this year, I think is, is the time to really go after them because they've accumulated a voting record up there in the last two years that the Democrats have had control of the uh, legislature in Virginia. Um, it's it's such an abominable voting record that they really they really can't defend themselves. Uh, and there's a lot of things to talk about there.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and we'll we'll get to that. And I kind of surprises me actually that there's never been a Republican candidate in that area. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty heavy military region of the state.
1: That's true. And uh, the American Veterans Vote Organization has provided me with uh, an amazing resource. There are over 5,000 veterans in my district, and we're going to be reaching out to them before I get the vote out here real quick. So um, you wanted to know a little bit about me. Yeah. Uh, I am a retired Navy officer. I had a 20-year career in the the Navy. Um, I retired as a lieutenant commander from the surface line community. And Mark, I know you know what that means. Um, yeah, you were real you were, Navy. You were you were a pilot. Yeah, I was a pilot, was,
0: so that you guys you guys would say that we weren't real Navy, but that's that's okay. I got to wear brown shoes though; that was kind of cool.
1: Uh, yeah, it looked like yeah. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was a ship driver, and um, and I enjoyed that immensely. Um, within 20 years, I deployed four times on six month deployments, three of which were from West Coast ports. Uh, To the Western Pacific and in one case uh, into the Persian Gulf where I participated in Desert Storm Um, My final deployment was out of Norfolk here um, On a carrier group staff and we went into the Mediterranean and operated in the Northern Red Sea So I went through the Suez Canal um, And that was the second part of Desert Storm um, uh, For for that uh, that cruise Um, My last my last uh, tour of duty here uh, in the Navy was in the embassy in Mexico City, mm-hmm. where I was a security assistance officer, uh, and that was amazing. So I've had a pretty diverse experience uh, as a naval officer. Um, after I left the Navy, or actually I, sh- I should say uh, before I left, uh, on the last couple of assignments I had here in the Norfolk area, I went to uh, Regent University and uh, did a lot of postgraduate work on that from the School of Education because I anticipated my second career would be in, in the classroom. And that's true. That's what happened. Um, I had a uh, the first year I was kind of a long-term substitute in the Chesapeake Public System, uh, teaching high school history, um, world world history, and then uh, the next five years I was at a private Christian school called Stonebridge, mm-hmm. where I taught world history to uh, ninth and tenth graders and Old Testament survey uh, to the ninth graders, and that was a um, a very stimulating um, time for me. In fact. Mark, as I look over my shoulder um, and the uh, you know the footprints in the sand behind me, I see that um, that time when I was in the classroom at Stonebridge was not so much as a teacher, but as a student. And a lot of the things I learned there um, have really shaped my worldview and my perspective and were a crucial part of getting me ready for what's facing me right now as I get ready to enter the House of Delegates. Yeah. Um, Since then, I've been uh, also, uh, I worked for um, the National Right to Work Committee, which I see now is a huge advantage um, because right to work is an issue that's going to be very much in front of us if uh, the Democrats continue to control Virginia politics from Richmond. Um, So that's going to be a huge issue with our economy and our labor force. Uh, But I've also worked at a McDonald's um, in a lower point in my life um, where things were really tough. And I was a drive through quarter taker. <laughs> but you know, that was also a classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the curriculum there was uh, humility and patience. And Mike, or Mark, I was there for uh, six years because I think it was a hard thing for me to learn, patience and humility. So, yeah. But all of that has prepared me for what's in front of me now. And I'm a man of faith, and I very much believe that uh, all that preparation was by design. And uh, I'm excited to be stepping into the next phase here.
0: Well, nothing happens by accident, I don't believe. I think uh, we have all these lessons for for a purpose to prepare us for what is to come. And it yeah. sounds like that has prepared you for the blood sport that is politics. <laughs> it is the the blood sport. It's uh, uh, You know, I live up here in the Washington, D.C. area, as you know, and and uh, that's what it's all about. It's not for the th- it's not for the thin skin. That's for sure. And I'm sure yeah. out on the campaign trail, you have found this out. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about uh, not only your worldview that you mentioned, but uh, tell us what's going on. What are you hearing uh, out on the campaign trail? Because the the election's coming up, and for those of you that don't know this, uh, elect early election uh, early voting rather has been going on for quite some time. So if you've not voted, get out and vote. Do not miss this. Do not miss the opportunity to. Uh, have your vote counted, and you can do that now, but uh, as, Jeff, as you're out there uh, talking to the the voters, what are you hearing?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> yes, early voting started on September uh, 17th, and I was there that day, and I had the, I um, <laughs> the very odd circumstance of seeing my own name on a ballot for the first time ever. And that was pretty cool.
0: <laughs> that must've uh, been strange, strange feeling. It was,
1: yeah. uh, it was pretty cool. Um, I, I enjoyed that immensely and took a picture of it and everything. So, um, well, let me a little bit more. The, my, uh, my opponent, the the incumbent, um, has been part of the, of a radical leftist liberal socialist agenda um, that is really transforming the appearance of what Virginia is and, um, my undergraduate degree from the university was, uh, is in history and I focused on colonial American. Um, and I, I have a pretty good appreciation of exactly what, what our government should look like and how it should be behaving. Uh, and we're a very far, far cry from that right now. So, um. The district I'm running in, as I mentioned earlier, is was designed for uh, minority representation, um, and that's why there's not been a Republican in it, it, uh, at least in in the last several decades. Um, But. What we see here is uh, a district that's that's profoundly blue and I'm running as a Republican, so my approach to the electorate um, is is based on a couple things. Uh, Number one. The traditional democrat base in this district um, is more and more willing to consider a non-democrat choice on their ballot than they have ever been because of some of the ridiculous things that their legislators have been been promoting and passing into law. Um, They're scratching their heads. Um, The two primary issues in my district that we're campaigning on hard is in um, education and in public safety. the yunkin campaign which you mentioned earlier he's running for governor um is embracing those same two topics uh, and they have um, a platform that is uh, a beautiful thing from my perspective but i add a little bit to it and i've actually had a chance to talk to mr yunkin about this and i look forward to sharing more about it with him later but um, we're looking at school choice we're looking at um, parents having more options available for the education of their children uh, we're looking at more generalized respect for parents here in Virginia by the school agencies, specifically the public schools. Um, and that, that that really touches uh, in the areas of curriculum, but it also touches in the areas of the social context that the children will be in when they're on, in the public school classrooms. And when I talk about that, I'm specifically talking about the agenda of the radicalized um, transgender and homosexual lobby. Um the other things are, of course, uh, parental control over vaccinations and whether the children will, will be wearing masks. Um, the final criteria or an issue I'm looking at under the rubric of uh, education is civics education. Um, Mark, I believe that, that schooling has a couple of necessary outcomes for it to be considered successful. Obviously, a child when they leave high school ought to be either ready to enter a university or a college of their choice or to enter the workforce with some vocational aptitude preparation. But even more important to me, for a high school graduate, is for a person to be ready to become a good citizen. Mm-hmm. And citizenship education is radically lacking, not just in our commonwealth here, but across the country. And it's evidenced in the interviews on the streets that you hear from time to time where young people coming out of the high schools of our nation are, are more and more often embracing the ideals of Karl Marx. Now, they wouldn't articulate it that way, but they think socialism is cool, and that's a problem. And it comes right out of our high school classrooms, and that has to change in Virginia, and I intend to be part of that. Young people graduating from high schools in Virginia need to be able to articulate why American is an exceptional place, what makes us exceptional, and what it takes to keep us exceptional. And right now they cannot answer questions like that. So getting finally to your question, what am I hearing at the doors? Well, I can't come across as a radical red, white, and blue Republican. I have to I think, what was it, Uh, was it Harry Truman or maybe even Franklin D. Roosevelt said that all politics is local? The local issues are what I'm focusing on. And so the education issues resonate with the families and the parents here in my district, as well as the public safety issues. And um, I'm happy to talk about those. But when I get to the doors and knock on the doors, you know, I introduce myself, say I'm here to say hello, introduce myself, and I have some literature for you to to, to take a look at, and uh, I tell them I'm a veteran. Uh, there are over 5,000 veterans in my district, and even if they're not veterans, more often than not, they have veterans in their families who they revere and respect. And um, so, I introduce myself first and foremost as a candidate, but also a candidate who's a veteran. And if it finally gets around to what party I'm on, I'm not hesitant to tell them. Um, but I, I really need to uh, I need to get their attention and win their confidence. Um, before I asked them to seriously consider radically changing their voting behavior. And so that's the approach I take. And it's, and it's uniformly been very encouraging. Um, People are listening. People are willing to have engaged in conversations. Um, Mark just yesterday, or maybe it was two days ago, I was at a, at a house. The lady was sitting out on her porch having a phone conversation. When I came up, she put the phone down. She was a recent immigrant from New York city and a retired nurse and a traditional Democrat voter. Well, we had a very satisfying conversation and through the, during the course of the conversation, um, she heard something she'd never heard before that Glenn Youngkin is a man of honor, that Glenn Youngkin has a great plan for Virginia, especially for Virginia education. Um, and that the families of Virginia with children that are in their school age are going to really benefit from a Yunkin governorship. She had never heard anything like that. She was shocked to hear that. It's amazing. She was, also, she was also shocked to hear that last year the legislature of Virginia uh, removed restrictions on school public school administrators for reporting assaults on campus to the police. They removed those restrictions and in the same breath they embraced the radicalized transgender and homosexual lobbies agenda of uh, normalizing uh, these kind of lifestyles in the public schools to the extent that biological males can use girls' restrooms and girls' locker rooms. And so when you put those two pieces of legislation together, you end up with a recipe for disaster. And Mark, I know you've heard about it, but in Loudoun County, a very, very horrible thing happened at the end of the school year last year in May where a boy wearing a skirt went into a girl's bathroom and he sexually assaulted a young lady, a ninth grade girl. Um, and when, when when all was said and done and the rape kit was, was accomplished with the, with the police, She had been raped by this boy. The school did not have to report this assault, and they did not. They rather, they transferred this boy, this offender, this sex offender, to another school where he committed another sexual assault against another girl. No one had heard of this through the whole summer. It didn't come out until the news, until a recent Loudoun County school board meeting, where the very father of that assaulted young lady um, heard from the school board that there had been no notifications of any kind of sexual assaults in the last school year, and he went nuts. His own daughter was being ignored, and what had happened to her was being swept under the rug. This school board actually had the gall to say that they weren't even aware that this happened, that that was the first time they'd heard of it we are in a bad place and it's because to a great extent our legislature has failed the families of virginia and the guy that i'm running against voted yes on the trans the the transgender agenda and he voted yes on making these violations not reportable and uh i shared that information with this lady at the doorstep and she was shocked It was very plain in her body language and her facial expression. She could not believe that that had happened. But she's not heard this. No. So this is what I'm getting at the doorsteps. Um, I'm either getting universal approval and blessing from those who are sick and tired of what's going on in Richmond, or I'm getting a willingness to listen and a willingness to receive the truth that has not been reported to them. And I'm very encouraged by that.
0: That is just so unbelievable. And by the way, the, the gentleman that you're talking about, Mr. Smith is his name, uh, out of Loudoun County. I, I live in Fairfax County, so Loudoun is the, the next county over. So this was big news here. Uh, not only did he go to that school board meeting, but he was arrested. He was yes. arrested at yes. at the school board meeting. And as you know, this has become national news and and there's a national outrage and also uh, that is coupled with the fact that the Department of Justice under Merrick Gardland, our attorney general, put out a memo, um, as you're aware, I think a lot of the listeners are aware, um, giving direction to uh, the Department of Justice and to the FBI to set up a system whereby um, parent, unruly parents could be um, easily reported to, to the FBI. And we did a whole podcast on that, so I won't relitigate that whole issue but uh, that is an abuse of power and uh, don't really understand uh, what the reasoning behind that is other than just put a chill uh, in parents and preventing them for going and protesting at school board meetings, which is what uh, w- which was a, what that was intended to do. Now, uh, one nice thing, if there is one silver lining that, that comes out of that, is it has put the focus on local elections, and certainly school boards, that has never been there before. I mean, how many people really, I mean, honestly paid attention to what was going on in their local school board? Well, these incidents have made that front and center. And that's why I wanted to get involved in helping the local candidates get elected, much like yourself. Because what we are seeing is the national politics are being implemented through the local politics, Meaning Mm -hmm. we have this national agenda that has come out from the Biden administration, but it's implemented at the local level. So these elections, like the House seat that you're running for in District 77, is vital because these people can do a lot of damage. Your opponent has done a lot of damage to the community. And most people don't know that because it's not being reported in the media. And that's why this podcast and others like it exist. Is to get the word out, and I'm so encouraged to hear that people are bothered by this because they should be bothered by it. This is a big, big deal. Um, so, when it comes to education, let's because that's your background. Let's kind of start with that. And uh, you can't ignore the fact that critical race theory is being pushed across the Commonwealth. Uh, what are you hearing about that?
1: Well, of course, the standard line is that it is not in our schools. Um, and, of course, that's just not true.
0: That is not true at all. That's absolutely not true. It is. Crit-
1: critical race theory has been around for decades. It's been mostly confined to the halls of academia and for um, the, or the uh, philosophical level. Uh, however, it's been given um, some kind of a academic sort of blessing to it. Uh, it, it does. It is not a, um, a curriculum, and it is not an academic discipline. It is a political agenda, um, and it's based on a great deal of false information and manipulation of historical facts uh, to, to, uh, to support the agenda. Um, but it's um, one of the things that I've seen in education, uh, and I did go, I think I mentioned I went to the Regent University here in Virginia Beach and their School of Education uh, to prepare for my second career. Um, so I, I have a sense in my spirit and in my heart that uh, that these preparatory places for educators are, are important and valuable. But by and large, um, the, the vast majority of educational institutions that train teachers um, are under the sway of a profoundly liberal, progressive uh, leadership with a philosophy that would be much more closely aligned to Karl Marx than to our founders. Um, And that's where you're seeing the critical race theory being uh, perpetuated and taught. So the teachers coming out of these teaching schools, these teacher universities, these teaching colleges are are, are, to a great extent steeped in the theory. Um, And it it comes out in the classroom. It comes out as they make their lesson plans and they they do their, their teachings. It comes out in the lesson materials that they distribute to their children. And although there may not be a class called critical race theory on the curriculum charts of their schools, um, it's being, it's being added like seasoning into everything they teach. So um, that's, that's not good. That is not good. That's pollution. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's a contamination of the waters and it must be rooted out. Um, We have a pretty strong and very conservative school board here in Chesapeake. And I'm very proud uh, to be able to say that because it's it's kind of a, an island in an ocean of of uh, of the other side and um, one of the things that the chairman of our school board uh, has been ready you know i said many many times is that we can't take any action we being the school board um, unless a parent reports something that's going on in the classrooms and uh, parents are not allowed in the classrooms um, where this really got its, um, its advertising, it, it, it was really shown to be a, 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 the situation, was last year when so many of the classrooms went online during these the, the, the COVID shutdowns. And the parents who were home with their children now could listen in and, and participate even in the online education. And they began to start seeing some things that they did not know what had been happening. <laughs> yeah. And the children don't know any different, of course. They wouldn't know. Like, you know, mom, we were talking about critical race theory last night at the kitchen table when we were having dinner. And and oh by the way, we it, it came up in class today. No, that that doesn't happen. Uh the children just, you know, the teachers, the authority in the classroom, they're educationally prepared to lead the child into new uh, horizons of understanding things and and the child wants to to believe the teacher um and so what the teacher says is what the teacher the child's going to learn and they may or may not share that with the parents well that all changed the last year when parents were actually hearing what was going on in the classrooms and in addition to the other foolishness that we're running into which we've already talked a little bit about um the whole issue of curriculum the whole issue of what's being passed off as good literature in the school libraries, the stuff that's on the reading lists of, uh, of, uh, English students and other literature courses are, are, are hugely offensive to so many of our parents. Um, so that becomes an issue too. Um, but our school board has been able to, has been able to resist that. But I guess my point in bringing that whole item up was parents need to communicate to their school boards when there is something inappropriate going on in their classroom. And again, when I say inappropriate, uh, I, I, I would like to just say that in my opinion, parents hire teachers, professionals who are subject matter experts to come alongside the parent and fill in gaps in what the parent's able to teach their own children. And when a school teacher in a public school or any other t- learning environment does something to undo or confuse or cast doubt on something a parent's teaching in the home, then that teacher has stepped outside of their jurisdiction, and they need to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. But but we can't know that unless we have access to the classrooms. And I've seen one of the uh, agenda items for some of the candidates with whom I've been speaking, um, that every classroom have cameras in it so that it could be publicly accessible by parents who are interested in learning what's going on there. And um, it seems intrusive, but the environment we're in, I think justifies it.
0: Yeah. Well, it it is definitely an eye opener. If there was again, another silver lining that came out of COVID, it was, this was an awakening for people. People are aware now. And, You have to, if you, listen, if you don't like what's going on in the schools and and it appears that much of the nation, certainly here in the Commonwealth, people are not happy with it, then you got to remember the people you have in office right now are the people that voted for this stuff. And if you wanted to change, then get other people in, get people like Jeffrey Burke in office, because if you don't, then you have no one but yourself to blame for it. You know, we get the government... Uh, we get the government we deserve, not necessarily the government we want. And if you want to change that, then get involved. Now, uh, another big issue, as you know, is uh, how are, we've been treating the police. What are, what are your constituents saying about defunding the police and, uh, you know, just really the, the treatment that the first responders have been going through in the last year, year and a half? What, what are you hearing there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll get one of two responses. Most people will say, that's the craziest idea I ever heard of. Who, why would you do that? You know, um, I have a fairly substantial minority community in in the district that I'm running for. Um, And more often than not, the minority districts, the minority areas, are the areas that are hardest hit by crime. And uh, not just petty crime, but we're talking, you know, the, the more serious crimes, the felony level crimes. And they know, these folks know that, Regardless of the, you know, imperfectibility of, of of police officers, that they are a line of defense against anarchy, against uh, you know the wild wild west. So most people that I interact with at the door when we talk about public safety and defunding the police, they are they are un in, in uniformly in agreement that that we can't do that. That it's the stupidest thing they've ever heard. However, there is another side to it, and there are people there are folks who've been, um, I don't know, I guess they've been in, uh, indoctrinated probably is the wrong term, although I guess it could be used, but uh, they come up with all these examples of why um, we have to rein in the police, you know, more rigorously. And and of course this goes to critical race theory. There's an overlap there, of course. Um, um, so they're, they're fairly quick to apologize for the expression defund the police. I mean, uh, if you think about it and just the two, the three words you're looking at, yeah, that's a crazy idea. So they're talking more about, well, it's not so much, we're defunding the police We're we're actually going to shift some of those funds to, um, a social work kind of officer who would accompany policemen around and, uh, and maybe, that would be a solution to some of these problems. But, you know, there's merit to that kind of thinking, but that's not what we're seeing in the in the great police departments across our nation, uh, like in the great cities, you know, the Chicago, uh, New York City are the two that come to mind um, where well, they've had huge cutbacks in their police budget, and they have not necessarily been reoriented towards um, a more of a social, social work or a mental health uh, provider work, uh, you know, background. So, it's um, it's what, what it's doing is it's causing an environment. that Not only is reducing the police, the active police forces um, effectiveness in, in patrolling and in and in, in inhibiting behavior of criminals by their presence on the streets, but it's also creating an environment that is hurting recruiting you know, and it's causing an accident from and police out. forces and it's, it's having a profound effect who in my community are going to be alone. the leader. In my district, there are two Chesapeake police precincts, uh, one completely in my district and another one's partially in another district, but partially in mine. And I met with the commanding, uh, the captains of both of those districts uh, in the last couple of months and they've shared the same, the same kind of tales of woe. I mean, Department-wide in the city of Chesapeake, uh, we're down over 20 officers, and that's impacting each of the five precincts that we have. Um, the, the reduced manpower is because the recruiting classes are smaller and because the mid-grade op- many mid-grade officers are migrating out of the department. Some of them changing cl- careers completely, other ones moving to other departments where there's more financial incentives for them to come there. Um, the bottom line is is that when you have fewer officers to do the same amount of work, then you don't have the flexibility you had before of, um, of pulling officers aside so they can go through a day's worth of uh, professional development training. Um, you don't have officers who can interact with the community as community relations officers as readily. Um, you don't it's more and more difficult to schedule um, vacation and leave time for officers because you just don't have the resources available. Um, Which burns
0: out the rest of the officers that you have. Uh, Exactly. Right.
1: There's more, more overtime being paid or you just don't have the time on the streets. They're not actually out on the beat like they have been. And we are seeing a difference. Uh, The community I live in is a middle-class, multiracial, single-family home housing development in a suburban area. I've been here for 20 years, and earlier this year, there was a shooting two blocks from my house. It did not result in a homicide, but the young man who was a high school student is paralyzed for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. That had never happened in my community before. And it's, happened, it's happening more and more around the city and more and more around Hampton Roads, which is our region here. And the re, part of the reason is because there's not as much police presence, number one, and because the environment has been so anti-police, socially at least, um, those who are would-be criminals feel more emboldened to do what it is they're going to do. And it's, it's it's across the board. Gang activities on the increase um, burglaries. Um, you know, one of the things we're dealing with down here is people A two or three person group are coming out at two in the morning or, you know, late, late hours and they're cutting the catalytic converters out of their vehicles right there in the driveways. And they're stealing the catalytic converters because there are, there are, um, very valuable, um, minerals, you know, metals in it that they can resell uh, at at a pretty remarkable profit. Um, That's happening all over. They feel emboldened and they get right up in your driveway and they use these cutting tools. They climb underneath your vehicle and they cut it right out and they're off and gone in 20, maybe less than 20 minutes.
0: This has been a disastrous trend. You know, we have, uh, uh, Chesapeake aside, I mean, you you talked about some of the major departments. You know, we have just an incredible number of uh, officers hemorrhaging from these departments. Recruitment is down. You can't get people to go into law enforcement. And what, you know, as a former law enforcement guy myself, I look at this and I think to myself, you know, I know you want to defend the police. I know you're doing these things because you don't like how police departments are being run now. But I got news for you. The way that we're going, if you don't like police officers now, if you don't like how police departments are run it currently, you're really not going to like how they're run 20 years from now. Because people have to understand that this is the foundation, that um, you're not getting the the quality of the recruits that you want if you get anybody that that's coming in at all. And those are the people that are going to be leading these various, ag- various agencies 10, 15 years from now. And you're not going to like them because if you don't like the quality now, you're going to like it even less down the road. So what we're doing makes absolutely no sense. And we've got to turn this around. This is why this election cycle is so important. It really is. And I'll tell you something too. Now, let's just kind of switch to the governor for uh, for a minute here. Um, you know, I know you're running for the House of Delegates, but we've got a governor uh, right now in Governor Northam that has been a disaster as well. And uh, the person that's running for that seat is Terry McAuliffe, who was a disaster. He was the Clinton bag man, and he's running up against um, uh, Governor, or hopefully Governor Youngkin, I, I was speaking out of turn there. But, um, you know, how about some thoughts on that? What are you hearing about the current governor and the uh, chances of, uh, of Youngkin coming in and, and taking over?
1: Well, I, um, on the campaign trail, I have interacted with uh, Glenn Youngkin on numerous occasions. Um, as you know, back in March or in May, we had the Republicans in Virginia had an unassembled convention where they chose their candidates for the top three offices in Virginia. And quite honestly, Mr. Yonkin was not my first choice. Um, I had there were a couple others uh, that I, I thought might be better at it. But, Mark, ever since I've been interacting with him on the campaign trail, I have been blown away by the kind of man, the kind of man he is. And I have no doubt in my r- mind right now that he was absolutely the best choice of all of those great candidates we had back in, in May that were running for the, for the privilege of, of uh, becoming our next governor as a Republican. Um, Glenn has a, uh, a really great program, as you've already articulated, uh, and he's very, very sensitive to the need to support our local police uh, and our, our you know, the officers all across the Commonwealth, including our sheriff's deputies and state troopers. Um, at the doors, um, a lot of people just, are, again, are, are not getting the right information. Uh, and that's, a, that's um, attributable to the media in many instances. Um, but you can't help but notice that Mr. Youngkin has gotten endorsements um, from a remarkable number of uh, law enforcement organizations across the state or the Commonwealth here of Virginia. Uh, it's, it's amusing to me that, that Terry McAuliffe uh, had some ad, uh, television advertising up uh, a couple of weeks ago where one of a handful of Virginia sheriffs was actually endorsing him. Now, that's a minority group. <laughs> uh, I think there's only about 50 sheriffs across the, uh, the Commonwealth here that are, are still aligned towards the, the Democrat uh, side of the House. All the rest of them are leaning towards or actually openly uh, advocating that, that, that Glenn Young can win. The FOP the police benevolent association at the state level are all strongly behind him because they know Terry McAuliffe is not a law and order kind of guy. And they know that Glenn Youngkin is. And so at the doors, um, I'm either correcting uh, incorrect information or I'm getting uh, positive feedback from the, from the folks at the doors, that Youngkin is going to be a law and order kind of governor. Um, of course, when we talk about law and order, you can't help but talk about uh, Jason Miares, who's running as the Republican for the uh, Attorney General slot yeah. uh, against Mark Herron, who's demonstrated very, very amply uh, his unwillingness to to enforce the law across our across our um, Commonwealth. The other thing to say about Glenn Youngkin in law enforcement is um, his uh, his anticip- anticipated uh, action with uh, the parole board. Um, the parole board is a big part of the problem here in Virginia over the last several years. And um, every member of that parole board was appointed by either Terry McAuliffe or Ralph Northam. And uh, we're going we're gonna to see a radical restructuring of the membership of that board shortly after Glenn Youngkin gets elected. And that's to the advantage of every victim of crime in the Commonwealth. And I am really excited about that.
0: Well, I'll tell you something. You said that there may be across the Commonwealth about fifty sheriffs that are supporting McAuliffe. I would yeah. love to have any one of. If you're listening to this podcast and you are a sheriff in the Commonwealth of Virginia and you're supporting McAuliffe, I'd love to have you come on the show and explain to me why. Why in the world that's the case? I, I cannot imagine, as a law enforcement officer, that Terry McAuliffe is your guy. I just can't. Can't I? Can't imagine that? You know, I've, I've yeah. spent the the bulk of my life in law enforcement. And I see nothing from Northam or McAuliffe that would appeal to me as a law enforcement officer. None. Right. And, and before as we leave, uh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say?
1: Well, before we leave uh, the subject of public safety, I yeah. would like to add um, last year, the um, the general assembly in Richmond um, had legislation before them to remove qualified immunity from our law enforcement yes. officers, Commonwealth. A lot of people don't understand what that means, but in the simplest terms that I can conjure up, um, qualified immunity is that legal protection afforded law enforcement officers who in the course of executing their, their, their constitutional duties end up injuring, hurting, or hurting someone, or ultimately even maybe killing them. They are protected from civil lawsuits if they are operating in the course of their, of their normally assigned duties and doing their duties, um, uh, in a manner that's appropriate and, uh, to, to the, uh, to the situation. Uh, this has come under attack. Uh, it's qualified immunity. Um, and I, I had a conversation with the, uh, the Chesapeake sheriff about a month ago. Um, of course, he's a constitutional officer. He's not hired by the city. He's hired by the citizens to be the sheriff and he he runs the jail and takes care of the courthouses and and the, you know his people the deputies do the uh, the service um uh, issuing you know the, the the different legal documents that need need to be issued um but the sheriff told me plain and clear he said if qualified immunity is is uh, taken away from the law enforcement he will be among the first to resign his position because he will no longer be protected from a civil lawsuit that could cause him to lose his house, his uh, his um, savings, his whole life, uh, in the in the in the completion of his normally assigned duties to the best extent of his ability, and that would be true for state troopers, or any other deputy or sheriff across the Commonwealth, and any officer wearing blue, um, who's who's in the normal course of their duties, could run into a situation that causes them to. Resort to deadly force or something leading up to it that could cause um, a catastrophic uh, incident that could even result in the death of a of someone, a suspect, like we saw with the George Floyd case, mm-hmm. a civil lawsuit. Now they are protected. Now that doesn't mean that the family, an aggrieved family, can't sue the city or the department because they can. This is a direct assault against the officers. Yeah. And by the way, and let
0: me, let me clarify something there too. You know, again, as, as a, as a former law enforcement uh, guy myself, because the listeners, I I want to be very clear about this because you might, if you're listening to this podcast, you might listen to it and think, no, wait a minute. You're, you're saying that somebody is protected. And like, if we take the George Floyd incident within that officer would be protected. No, 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 no. Listen very closely. This is, you're, you're operating within the scope of your duties and you're operating within the scope of your training, and you were you were reasonable. So you were you're tying your training, you're ta- you're tying your job, and it is your duties. If you go outside of that scope, meaning your behavior was reckless, and you are not relying upon your training, or um, uh, it, w- it was within your duties. Oh no, you're still subject to, to civil lawsuits. They're just saying that in the normal course of your duties, if you're taking. Um, um, reasonable precautions and you were you're doing your job for example uh, it, there are times in, in law enforcement when you have to use deadly force and it's legitimate and it's within your training it's within the scope of your duties what we're saying is that those officers would be protected as long as it was it was uh, within those those boundaries and that's what we're talking about right here that will be removed for officers. That's right. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. And and it's difficult for people that have never done this. And I've done this where my job every single day, I went to job, went to work for almost 25 years. I was in a position where I may have had to use deadly force. And that's a real possibility every single day. Now you're going right. to ask young people to go into a profession where you don't have any protections in that. Well, who in the world would go into law enforcement as a profession Mm. if you didn't have reasonable protections doing your job? That's what we're talking about. This is a big deal, folks. This is a big deal. And that's why I say all you sheriffs in the Commonwealth of Virginia that are supporting Terry McAuliffe, please come on the show and explain to me your reasoning for wanting that man in office. I don't understand it.
1: Well, I can tell you um, that legislation attempt to remove qualified immunity for our officers just about passed. Uh, again, the Democrats control both houses of our legislature and, you know, Governor Northam would have signed it into law. It did not pass. And one of the reasons for that is, is because our sheriff here in Chesapeake made a phone call to my opponent and to uh, one of the local senators, Democrat senators here. um, And I don't know what was said on that phone call, but I suspect he metaphorically reached through that phone and grabbed him by the throats and shook him up because they both ended up voting no on it, and it caused the bill to fail. But we have not, don't have that guarantee every year coming out, and that's another reason. We need to turn the House upside down Mm -hmm. and make the bread again. And two more years do the same thing in the Senate. There is just too much at stake here just too much at stake.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, before we close out today, uh, one last thing. You had mentioned that in your district, it looks like people are starting to trend towards um, wanting to vote Republican. And along with that, I can't escape the elephant room, and that is Joe Biden. What are people saying about this? Because the, the turnout for this election is certainly going to be influenced by what's going on at the national level. I know this is a local office you're running for, but there's no way of escaping what's going on at the national level in the political climate. What are you hearing there?
1: Well, excuse me. <laughs> um, I'm sure you watched both of the, you know, the, the gubernatorial debates. I did. Yeah. I saw how quickly uh, Terry McAuliffe was to, uh, to invoke the name of, uh, of Donald Trump when he was referring to um, Glenn Youngkin. Um, I, any opportunity I get to, uh, remind the voters in my district that uh, the guy I'm running against is in the same party as Joe Biden, especially if they're veterans who are looking at what happened in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Um, to answer your question more specifically, I don't get a lot of conversation on that area, but when it comes up, all I almost in, inevitably, I'll get people rolling their eyes. Um, just The, the whole the whole president and vice president administration we have right now, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, are, I think more and more people are, are genuinely embarrassed. And they're in the positions of political leadership in this nation, especially after we've seen, what, nine, nine months worth of their efforts and everything has gone the wrong direction. Everything they have done.
0: I actually, and this is not me picking on Joe Biden. It's just speaking truth to power. I cannot think of one policy that Joe Biden has that has been in the interest of the United States. I can't think of one. Yeah. Well, he's
1: a globalist. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. You know, one of the things that President Trump was very, very affirmative about was America first. And the, the difference is radical between him and Joe Biden. Yeah. Because it looks to me like it's America last with Joe. He's promoting a a globalist agenda that's diminishing the eyes of the United States and the the world community, both as political leaders, as economic leaders, and as military leaders, Um, and he's doing it very effectively. He's carrying on basically the same agenda that was started by President Obama um, several years ago. So none of this is surprising to me. It's incredibly disappointing, but none of it's very surprising to me.
0: Well, I'm very excited about this because this election is going to set the tone for the following two years, following three years, really. Well, mm-hmm. uh, actually, no, we'll have the uh, uh, the midterm elections up in uh, up on the Hill shortly after this election, so we we will slowly get this back. We will slowly get this back, but it starts here, folks. It starts here in Virginia and in New Jersey, but we're focused on Virginia here because that's where we live. And we lead from where we stand and all of our support is behind you and all of the other candidates that are running with you on the Republican side of the house. And close us out with just uh, some final words, any final thoughts, and then don't forget to let the voters know how they can reach you if they would like to.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, my background is in history and I, as I said, colonial American history and it all started for, for America right here in Virginia. In fact, um, I'm sitting in Chesapeake, northeast Chesapeake, less than 20 miles from where I'm sitting. They, the first settlers that came from England uh, planted that cross in Virginia Beach, and they spoke a prayer over this continent, claiming this this whole huge piece of real estate for the purposes of God and the propagation of his gospel, not just for the salvation of souls, but for the, the perpetuation of a spirit of liberty in all the other arenas of life, including economic, political, social arenas, family life. Um, liberty was what they were preaching and teaching. It started right here in 1607. Um, you've heard about the 1619 project, which the New York times was promoting and that's the, the, the philosophical foundation of the critical race theory thing. Um, In 1619, a lot of really important things happened, including the arrival of the first Africans here. But they skip over the fact that that was the first English language Thanksgiving service in the North American continent. They skip over the fact that it was the first meeting of a truly representative legislative assembly in Jamestown. Liberty, this is the womb of liberty in North America, this commonwealth called Virginia. And we didn't get it perfectly right. And we had to fight a civil war to figure out some of this. But we were, we were given an instrument in the in the De- Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution with the Bill of Rights to make things better if they needed to be made better. And we've proven that it works if we will only use those documents from the spirit and in the, and in the letter that they were given. And we have drifted so far off base from that that we are finding ourselves in a very rocky Rocky sho- Shoal water here, to use a naval term. Um, we're, in, we're in a bad place. Glenn Youngkin likes to say we're in the ditch and we need to get back on the road. But we're in the ditch because we've drifted off of our, our moorings, our constitutional moorings. And what I want to be part of is the restoration of constitutional thinking in the public policy debate in Richmond. I want to be a big part of that. It's we the people. We are the sovereign authority in this land. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights governs how the government will work. And they protect us from the depredations of government. And it's been jacked up. It's been turned around. And it's been really hijacked. And we need to fix that. And the only way to really do it is take over the, the legislature and the governor's seats and redo the laws. Get rid of the bad stuff. And reincorporate constitutional life in our in our our wonderful commonwealth here. My name is Jeffrey Burke. Jeffrey is spelled the old fashioned way. It's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. My last name, Burke, is B-U-R-K-E. My website is www.jeffreyburke.com. the number four V A Um I mentioned that there are 5,000 veterans in my district. I'm getting ready to put together a postcard campaign to reach out to them to get the vote out. Um, veterans are, are not real faithful voters. Um, a lot of them will only vote in presidential elections, but this is the most important election we've had in Virginia in a very, very long time, and we need them on in, in the polling places. Um, the other thing I'm hoping to do is get some more airtime on some local radio stations. So I need the support of anyone who can contribute uh, to help me get the message out through those means. I'm very grateful. Um, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to taking this seat and restoring constitutional thinking and principles to the public policy debate in Richmond, Virginia.
0: Wow. So well said. And folks, that for www.jeffreyburke4virginia.com. Jeffrey Burke for Virginia. And that's the number for Virginia.com. And, and, Hey, Jeffrey, that has been such a pleasure having you on, on the show. Thanks for coming on.
1: Well, Mark, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Um, it's been a real fun time, and I appreciate it very much.
0: Yeah, we, we really appreciate you coming on. And, folks, once again, get out there. Um, as Jeffrey just said, the, the veterans, folks <laughs> – I get it. Uh, life is busy, uh, but there is a history. When we run the numbers, we, we can tell that veterans, by and large, tend to vote in the presidential elections. So that's that's true of everybody. It's not just veterans. But we cannot sit this one out, folks. You have to get out and vote because if there's one thing we've learned over the last year and a half, that the local offices matter. And in a lot of ways, your local offices can do more damage to you than than some of the stuff that's going on at the national level, and we are going to worry about the 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 capital about Capitol Hill and the presidential elections when those times come. But right now, first things first, the first order of business is get as many Republicans into the House of Delegates that we can, uh, get a Republican in all of the positions from the governor on down, and you know just turn this ship back around, and, and we're going to start by voting in people like Jeffrey Burke. So. Uh, once again, folks, this has been your one-stop shop for freedom, liberty, the American way, the Constitution. And, folks, I really appreciate you listening. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Parler, Rumble, and, 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 and the dreaded Facebook. Yes, we're still there for now. So check us out. We really appreciate you joining us, and we will be talking with you soon.